Hi, this is Esti, host of the Friday A Public Affair. I hope you help us by contributing to WORT and you can also subscribe to the podcast. Bye. Six more ticks above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground. No change without struggle. No one in power ain't giving up nothing. No change without struggle. No one in power. WORT 89.9 FM Listener Sponsored Community Radio Madison, Wisconsin And hello, welcome to A Public Affair I am STD Noor We will be talking today about the U.S.-Mexican border during the Trump um, and Miller years of uh, terror and um, also now what's going on now with us to discuss that is the author of a book titled my boy will die of sorrow a memoir of immigration from the front lines a friend C. Olivares is the deputy legal director of the Immigrant Justice Project at Southern Poverty Law Center. He was the lead lawyer in a successful landmark petition to the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights on behalf of families separated under the Zero Tolerance Policy. And he previously directed the Racial and Economic Justice Program at the Texas Civil Rights Project. His uh, writings on immigration uh, immigration policy have also been published in the New York Times, USA Today, and Newsweek, and he has uh, testified before com- Congress and at briefings on Capitol Hill about immigration and border policies. And um, Olivares was the first member of his family to attend college. He's a graduate of the University of Pennsylvania and Yale Law School. Hello, a friend. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hello, Esti. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. So, the title of the book, My Boy Will Die of Sorrow, is very evocative. What does it refer to? Well, it comes from a conversation I had with a, an immigrant father the very first time I went to a federal courtroom in McAllen, Texas, about five miles from the border, to see the parents who had been separated from their children. Immigrants who had crossed the border without authorization were being charged with uh, the misdemeanor crime of of illegal entry after the zero tolerance policy was announced. And those who were traveling with children were being separated from their children. This is in, in May of 2018, so before this crisis really hit the news and we before we realized how widespread it was and the the damage that it was causing and in one of those conversations i one of the very first i had that morning one of the parents um was telling me what had happened to him why he had to flee guatemala and and come to the u.s and how two days prior he had been separated from his 11 year old son and when I asked him what he thought would happen if he were deported and his son stayed in the U.S., um, his response after you know taking a moment and looking down, he said, "My boy will die of sorrow." And and that's where the title of my book comes from. And it's it's very meaningful to me that the title of the book is not even my boy's but the voice of one of the impacted parents, by the parents impacted by this policy, excuse me. Yeah, and <laughs> here we are just at the beginning of the show and you just brought tears to my eyes and I think maybe to yours too, um, even though I'm sure you're not telling that story for the first time. Why did they have to escape uh, Guatemala? In this, this particular family, they are indigenous. Uh, from an indigenous community in Guatemala, and they were facing persecution there because they are indigenous. Anyone familiar with Guatemala and its history knows the persecution that the indigenous peoples of that country have faced and continue to face today, um, defending natural resources, defending forests, access to water, 
you name it, they are oftentimes forced to, to flee. And that was the case for them. Mm-hmm. Did you ever, were you successful in um, getting them together again, this particular father and son? Thankfully, yes. This family is one of the many that we were able to confirm that they were reunited um, days after we met them in court. So they were one of the lucky ones in some ways that they weren't separated for, for many weeks or, or longer, months and years in some cases. They were able to be reunited that same summer. Mm-hmm. How many children were separated from their parents uh, during these terrible years? The most honest answer that I can give to this question is that we will never know for sure. Yeah. Because it wasn't documented. The government was not keeping records of who was being separated, of which children were traveling with which parents. And it was a combination of incompetence and cruelty. The order came down to separate as many children as possible from their parents with this Um, misguided at best idea of, of deterring others from coming to the border but there was no plan at all to bring them back together and we know this now for a fact through you know investigative journalism and litigation that there was no plan whatsoever to bring them back together so therefore there was no need to document the separations so the estimates are over 5,000 families were impacted by this in the neighborhood of 5500. Um, or so between April of 2018 when the policy was announced and, and June of that year. Um, but again, we don't know for a fact the, the exact number because documentation was non-existent for the most part. Mm-hmm. And we talked about it a lot at the time, but why don't you remind us what uh, was done with the kids and what was done with the adults? Certainly. since for, for many years since the 1920s there has been a law in the books that makes it a misdemeanor to cross the border between ports of entry so other than at an official entryway so in texas it's a bridge because there's a river farther west in new mexico arizona and california it's the desert so it's not always a bridge but crossing the border at any place other than a port of entry is this misdemeanor crime that carries the same penalty as running a stop sign at the Pentagon. $250 and up to six months in prison. Hmm. But everyone who pleads guilty to that crime gets time served. And all that means is that if you were arrested yesterday, you are sentenced to one day, and therefore you've already completed your sentence, and you either go home or are transferred over to ICE. And historically, prosecutors had discretion to decide who to charge and who not to charge. And for the most part, they would only charge people who had other criminal histories or multiple crossings. They would not charge first-time crossing asylum seekers or families, et cetera. During the Trump and Miller administration, as I think you accurately called it, uh, they announced this zero-tolerance policy whereby they would prosecute 100% of illegal crossings. And importantly, and I'll come back to this, at the southern border, not at the northern border. Um, and what that did is that when they needed to charge with this misdemeanor a, a parent who was traveling with a child, the child could not come with them to court. Hmm. So they were detained by Border Patrol. They were officially in DHS custody, Department of Homeland Security. The minute they were taken to federal court for this uh, criminal charge, they were in DOJ custody, Department of Justice. and the children couldn't come so the children stayed with DHS and the parent is now under DOJ in this legal fiction the child is unaccompanied and is separated and then they enter a separate legal process and they have to be taken by the office of refugee resettlement and taken to a shelter but they did this and again we know this through documentation knowing full well it was not a, a side effect it was the very intention of this policy To separate families to inflict the suffering on parents and children alike to then deter others from coming so that's what they started doing and there were instances we have learned this through through some of the litigation and and the reporting that the parents would come back to the border patrol station in the afternoon and the child was still there 
So it's like, okay, you can bring them back together. And the supervisors were saying, no, 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 we can't bring them back together. That's the point. We need to keep them apart. So it's been doubly frustrating to learn this over time that there were many instances where the separation was not necessary, and yet they still made sure that it happened because the suffering was the point. Hmm. And, and of course, I remember, and I'm sure the majority of our listeners remember, uh, these pictures and, and audio, too, of the children in cages um, with um, space blankets and nothing else held um, without their parents. And also the um, cases of children being brought to court, like four-year-old kids who don't speak any English, and not that I think that any American kid would be able to respond um, in that situation. But um, yeah, if you can talk about that, what actually happened to the kids? Um, I have a report here from the ACLU. Um, let me find it. But... Um, They were saying that, um, anyway, that, that children um, were abused, that there was sexual abuse, that um, um, there were kidnapping. Anyway, I can't find it, but, but please uh, follow up on what I'm trying to say here. And that summer, you know, we... we started seeing this in, in May, the second half of May. And then in June, it's when it hit the news and it became a crisis unlike I've ever seen in my professional life, humanitarian crisis in the immigration space. And um, yeah, you mentioned some of the images when you know members of Congress try to visit some of the facilities, the adults and, and children alike and, and Mylar blankets. And nothing was getting through to get people to oppose this policy more broadly. People still had this position like, well, it's the parents' fault. They brought the children across the border illegally. It's on them. It's not the government. People were making you know, moral acrobatics in their head to try to justify the policy. And I remember having conversations with my colleagues. It's like something, there's got to be an agent or somebody inside the facility who's going to leak a video or a photo of the families of the children suffering and that's what's going to do it somebody's going to have a conscience and even if they risk their job their livelihood they will do it and nothing happened until that audio that you referenced on monday june 18th in the evening propublica and another local outlet in south texas leaked this about eight minute long audio and i mean all the trigger warnings to people who have not heard it or Of it it's uh, about eight minutes of children crying nonstop inside one of the facilities there in McAllen in South South McAllen and it's extremely painful to listen to that audio because you hear them cry nonstop begging for for mommy and papi and again that was leaked on a Monday night and by Wednesday Wednesday ST the president signed an executive order. purporting to put an end to the separations less than 48 hours later and again, footnote here that it didn't really end the separations and it didn't do anything to reunite those who had been separated but that audio turned the public opinion completely against this policy even people who had previously been in support of it or defending it and I'm convinced that the reason that that audio was so powerful and so effective in, in changing hearts and minds of millions of people in the US was that when you hear children cry, you don't see the color of their skin. And all children cry the same. That got people thinking, those could be my kids. They cry just like my kids. Or if they don't have children, that's me when I was a child. That's how I used to cry. And it hit people at a visceral level. And ever since, I've been wondering, What else can be done to get people to care about people different than them the same way that they did after that audio in that, in that case? Um, in terms of the abuses and the conditions of, of, of children, during the Trump administration, you all might remember, but like children, something like seven or eight children died 
in ICE custody during the Trump administration and at Border Patrol facilities. And it felt as if every couple of months there was another report of a immigrant child who would die in detention. And that has stopped. I, I mean, I'm not saying things are great. Some things have improved, others have not. But we haven't heard about children dying in detention facilities in the last couple of years. Yeah, yeah, that's true. My guest is Franci Olivares. We're talking about his book, My Boy Will Die of Sorrow, a memoir of immigration from the front lines, and also about the situation during those terrible years. And we will get also to talking about what's going on now. You're welcome to join the conversation if uh, you have relevant questions or comments. 608-256-2001 or on social media at Word Talk on Twitter or a public affair on Facebook. So um, you mentioned, Efren, that uh, people were saying that it's the parents' fault. Why did they bring their kids? I actually still hear it nowadays um, about what's going on now and generally about the whole notion of immigration, migration. Why do these people come here? Uh, maybe you can tell us another story or two from your book to illustrate why it is that people leave their homes and uh, go through a very dangerous journey to come to a place that does not welcome them. People leave their homes for a number of reasons. I, you know, my family left Mexico when I was nine years old. And then I was able to join my father when I was 13 for looking for a job. My, my dad left for work, economic immigrants looking for a better future for his family. And we were the lucky ones. Um, one of the moms that I represented and that I met that, again that first day in court was Viviana from, from Guatemala. Her husband was murdered in the highlands of, of Guatemala early in 2018. Um, and then the murderers were after her and her 12-year-old son. So she had no option but to flee to the U.S. to save herself and her son. And when she finally made it to the U.S., when she thought she had made it and she was going to be safe, they took the Border Patrol agents took her son away and sent her off to a federal prison in Seattle and left her son at a shelter in South Texas. When I hear people say that it's the parents' fault because they put their children through that, uh, the journey through either Central America and Mexico, and think that the policies, policy changes in the U.S., deter people from coming or incentivize people from coming that in my mind misses the point migration has their push and pull factors factors that pull people to a certain country and factors that push people out of their country and in the western hemisphere it's mostly push factors that pull people out of their countries political repression persecution more uh, lately climate change and then the pull factors tend to be family connections, right? If you know somebody in the U.S., you come to the U.S. or if you have a, a family member. But with that, sometimes th that view that it's the parents' fault and, and they chose this, they chose to put their children through that. What that misses for me is that nobody leaves because they want to. Nobody leaves their home, their family, everything they know, their culture, the language they speak by choice. It's a last resort. It's an absolute last resort. I oftentimes think, uh, I wish I had stayed in my hometown with my friends from back home and my culture and was able to have the opportunities there that I've had here. So when somebody leaves and puts their family through that danger of the, of the journey and the border, think about how bad things must be that that option is the better option better than staying it's a last resort it's a desperate thing that that families go through and i think if we thought about it in those terms we would be more compassionate for what these families uh, go through and and have to go through only to be mistreated once once they arrive 
there's a, a fantastic poem that that I love. Um, it's you broke the ocean in half. You broke the ocean in half to be here. Only to meet nothing that wants you. By Nayira Wahid, and it gets me every time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we have a caller and we'll get to you, Steve, in a moment. But um, before we do that, I just want to, and maybe I'm stretching um, your expertise here, but I think it is important also to remember that um, at least part of why things are so terrible in these countries has to do with the United States. The United States has intervened in uh, very negative ways in places like Guatemala, Honduras, in Mexico, in Nicaragua. Um, there is that history of intervention and support of um, anti, anti-human rights factions by the United States that is at least partially responsible for what's going on in these countries. And then there's the... Um, the economic intervention that has made it so that natural resources and the profits from there um, flow to the United States and, and not to the citizens of these countries. So, so that needs to be discussed too, I think. What, what can you say to that? It is something that I touch upon in my book because it is inextricably linked to the migration phenomenon that we see today. In just one of the latest examples, but again, this dates back to the United Fruit Company in the 20th century and uh, 1954 in Guatemala with the overthrow of Arben, the assassination of President Arbenz back then. But very recently, in 2009, there was uh, President Zelaya in Honduras had been democratically elected and then was overthrown in a military coup in 2009 when President Obama was in office and Secretary Clinton was the Secretary of State in the US and the United States quickly recognized the military government, the overthrow of the democratically elected president because he was close to political views that were not consistent with American business interests in the region. That was 2009 and in 2014, we had the first humanitarian crisis of unaccompanied children met thousands, tens of thousands of whom were coming from Honduras at the U.S.-Mexico border. And then ever since, there's been another wave. Now it's Venezuelans and, and others. And we're seeing it right now playing out. And it, I don't think it has gotten enough coverage by the U.S. media in Peru. There was an attempted coup by the president. He tried to cancel elections. There's been widespread repression, handful to close to 10 people killed every day in these protests by Peruvian police. And the United States has not called out that repression. And we see this cyclically. It happens every few years in a different country. And then the repression leads to an exodus of people who come to the U.S. and then are turned away by the U.S. And it's exactly what you were saying, Esti. Access to natural resources, to those markets, both to buy and to sell American products. But when the populations of those countries are oppressed and forced to flee, we don't welcome them in this country. Yeah. Well, Steve, thank you for uh, your patience. You are on the air with Franci Olivares. Yeah, thank you. And and the list goes on and on. just the war that the U.S. supported and saw the devastation of that, of that country because of U.S. involvement. And we know where El Salvador is now as a direct result of that. Uh, intervention on the side of the fascist government in El Salvador. But anyway, that's not why I called. I, I wanted to ask the guests, um, you know, this, this atrocity that happened while it was happening was too much to bear and easily forgotten with all the other atrocities of the Trump administration that followed. But to hear, to hear about it again is it's really, um, it's, it's good to hear about it because it should not be forgotten. And I want to know, from the guests, it, will there be justice? Can we find accountability somewhere within the Trump uh, administration, if not from Trump himself, for this atrocity that was perpetrated by the U.S.? Will there be a chance to make things right? 
and and what where, what's the road to that to that justice? How do we get there? Mm-hmm. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, thank you, Steve, for the question. This question gets me every time for a couple of reasons, but primarily because we will never be able to get justice for all the families. There's at least one family that will never come back together, will never be reunited. There's a father in South Texas whose family we represented who was separated from his three-year-old child and then sent to a county jail there. And the following day, he took his own life. So we will never reunite all families. We will never have full justice for all families. That said, there are dozens of lawsuits currently in the courts pending uh, on behalf of of the separated families Um, and hundreds of others who are in the administrative stage and may end up becoming lawsuits at some point um, that the Biden administration the Biden DOJ is defending in in court <laughs> fairly aggressively, one might say. Um, there were talks of settlement a couple of uh, about a year ago, and then they fell through. So those cases are still pending, and we'll see. They are at different stages. So once the first ones reach a judgment or a trial, perhaps this year or early next year, that may impact the others. And those lawsuits are seeking monetary compensation for the torture that these families were subjected to. Now, that's one side of the coin. Justice for the families, if we can say that justice is monetary compensation, but it is at least something. The other side of the coin is accountability for the architects, the masterminds of this policy. Jeff Sessions, Stephen Miller, and the ICE agents and ICE directors and Border Patrol uh, chiefs and Border Patrol sector chiefs, etc., who made this policy possible. Um, And that is not happening in these lawsuits, right? These lawsuits are limited by what the law allows for something like this, and it is monetary compensation for the family if the judge agrees with with the plaintiffs, right? But as far as accountability, all of these former officials are getting paid handsomely at think tanks or at their own foundations that they have started. Um, And some of them are still in government, shockingly. So it's a long road to get to true accountability. One of the reasons I wrote this book is to memorialize that this happened and to not let it be forgotten because I've already heard Border Patrol agents saying, well, I'm not sure that it happened. I, I would need to look at the facts to see if, if families were in fact separated. And, and in this day and age, with the level of disinformation and misinformation that we see around there, it's a true possibility that people will try to rewrite history and, and bury this. Um, so I think it's important. But I could see, I'm, I'm concerned, frankly, Esti, that 20, 30 years from now, we will see something like what happens in Argentina, where all of a sudden a 30, 35-year-old finds out that they're not the biological child of, of who they thought were their parents because of the children that were lost in this as part of this crisis and maybe given up for adoption. I think at some point, something like a truth commission, like we've seen in other parts of the world, would be appropriate for this type of humanitarian and human rights crisis. And that would be, in my mind, the beginning of a true accountability for the people responsible for this. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's it's interesting that you mention Argentina and what happened there uh, when the generals took over and, and the country was under military dictatorship for quite a few years and um, leftists were taken and basically murdered many many of them and uh, those who had children or or those who were pregnant uh, the children were given to uh, families of of the fascist um, rule the people who um, who helped that coup were or you know or who um, who did that coup um, at least some of them were trained at the School of the Americas here in the United States. Same happened in Brazil. Um, so, again, going back to that point, um, 
And then, like you said, um, years later, suddenly these kids realized that they were actually the children of, of the people that their adoptive parents, who, who often pretended, I think, to be their real parents, um, killed. So um, it, it is also terrible. But let me, let me go back to, I asked you, How many kids were separated from their families, and you said we'll never really know. Uh, do we know how many kids are still separated from their families? Because not all of them, like you said, were um, reunited. Not all of them were reunited. Some are still separated. And again, of the ones that we know, there are hundreds that are still separated from the parent they were separated from. But if they were reunited with another relative in the U.S., and that happened in a lot of cases, that they were separated from their mother, the mother was deported, and the child had an aunt or an uncle in the U.S., and they were reunited with that relative, those the government considers as reunited families, even mm -hmm. though they were not reunited with their parents. There are still an unknown number of, of children who were separated under the zero tolerance policy who remain in, in government shelters or the equivalent of, of foster care um, whose parents cannot be located. They were deported and they cannot be located. So those children remain there and they will either enter the foster care system and the state where they are detained or age out. A lot of them are teenagers coming up on 18 years of age. That was now nearly five years ago. So at the time that they age out, they are either released from the shelter or transferred over to ICE detention for their removal proceedings. So hmm. it's, yeah, it gets, it gets worse. And, you know, I was uh, in Mexico a few times recently, and one thing I learned that I did not know is that those who are uh, sent back to their country of origin have problems then because they don't have their papers. Sometimes they don't know who their parents are or if they know they can't prove it. And so they, um, they become basically non-persons in their own country too. Do you know about they, that? What can you tell us about that? They are targeted. You know, in the case of people who are returned at the Mexican border, either Mexicans or from other nationalities, but who are sent to Mexico, one thing that uh, Border Patrol and ICE do is remove their shoelaces, ostensibly to, for safety reasons, mm. so that they cannot use the shoelaces to harm themselves or others. So when they are returning across the bridge into Mexico and they're not wearing any shoelaces, they immediately become a target for kidnapping and other crimes. Mm. For people who are returned to their home countries, yeah, they, they are targeted. There was a father, and, and I'm comfortable sharing his name, uh, that we, Luis Tabora, who was deported to Honduras and um, within hours of arriving. And he wanted to claim asylum, wanted to apply for asylum in the U.S. That's why he was here. Within hours of returning, he was gunned down in the streets of Tegucigalpa. So these are not made up or hypothetical stories these things happen and cost people lives so it is it is very much and sometimes in addition to the the, the immigrants who are returned being targeted their families too you know they, they are kidnapped and then their families are sought after for ransom and things like that it is a perverse system that creates the the most unimaginable incentives yeah Hi. Um, and and are, are there kids who simply disappeared from um, who maybe have been trafficked or um, who knows what what might have happened to them? Or do we know uh, what happened to all of the kids who were separated? Of the families that I and my team interviewed and represented, there's one parent and, and child pair, a father and a son that I interviewed personally. I interviewed him that first day in court and we were never able to locate him or his son. Hmm. He was never in ICE detention. His A number and information was never entered into the system. And the child never entered a shelter, never entered the ORR, Office of Refugee Resettlement System. So best case scenario, they were reunited that afternoon and released, which would be shocking 
that same day uh, together. Worst case scenario, you can imagine the worst, but we don't know. Five years later, we've never been able to confirm what happened to them. Mm-hmm. Well, again, my uh, guest is Efrenzi Olivares. Uh, we're talking about his book, My Boy Will Die of Sorrow, a memoir of immigration from the front lines. And uh, we are going to transition actually now to talking about what's going on currently, even though, Efren, I could I could spend another couple hours with you just talking about the past and, and um, your book, but we don't have the time. Uh, again, if you want to join us, you can do it at 608-256-2001 or on social media. So um, you mentioned that the Biden administration is defending against these lawsuits that... Um, are looking for uh, some resolution. You've noted that the law doesn't allow for real good resolution, maybe. Um, so that's interesting, but um, we also can't say that the Biden administration has um, solved or resolved or, um, you know, I mean... Thankfully, we don't separate children from their parents anymore. Um, but how how are things right now on the border? Well, it's a mixed bag. Certainly, some things have, have gotten much better, right? The, the, fa- the Biden administration put together a family reunification task force, and on the issue of family separation in particular, they were able to reunite hundreds of families that remained separated at the end of the Trump administration and who are now together. And that is great. And I am happy about that and thankful to the administration for for doing that. They have tried to end certain policies like the Remain in Mexico policy that then got snarled in litigation by um, anti-immigrant attorney generals in in states like Texas and Louisiana and other states, Missouri, that have prevented those policies from truly ending. And then you have situations like Title 42 that are really hard to justify what the Biden administration is doing in that regard. The Title 42 is a law that's been in the books since the early 1900s, that what it calls for is for the, to prevent the introduction of, of goods and persons into the U.S. when they might bring a communicable disease, prevent the entry of. And in March of 2020, this, you know, fell on the lap of the, the, the COVID-19 pandemic fell on the lap of Stephen Miller. And I don't know if your listeners will be familiar with the shock doctrine, that, that book by Naomi Klein that says that when there's a moment of crisis, our societies accept certain policies that would otherwise be intolerable. And a great example of that is the Patriot Act of 2003 or 2002, right after the 9-11 attacks. But in this case, it was Title 42. And under the using the COVID pandemic as a pretext, they said nobody can come in without documents, right? So they started expelling people, not preventing the entry of because people were already physically inside the United States after crossing the border. They were expelling them without any explanation to Haiti, to Venezuela, to not Venezuela, to Haiti and other countries with horrible conditions, even if people claimed fear, even if they had relatives in the U.S., Nothing was worth it. At the time, I was living in South Texas. And I would drive into Mexico and cross the border. Not once, Esti, was I asked if I had symptoms, if I had come in contact with anybody with COVID. If I had COVID, if I could have been COVID positive and be crossing the border, and no one ever asked me. It was only people who crossed the border without authorization. So to me, that right off the bat belies that this was about public health. This has... Title 42 has now been turned into uh, a way to try to, quote, administer the border. And it shocks the mind that now you have the Biden administration expanding it and implementing what was Stephen Miller's dream come true of, of a policy to try to prevent the entry of black and brown people at the southern border. Um, so that is, is extremely problematic um, the per, the parole uh, program that was announced recently of up to 30,000 folks from certain countries, um, Cuba, Nicaragua, Venezuela, and Haiti, 
that is a good thing. It's not as good as it could be because people have to find a financial sponsor and the people who most need the protection do not have a, a financial sponsor, cannot get on a plane to come to the US. So it's not perfect, but it is something good. At the end of the day, we continue to use 20th century or older solutions for what's very much a 21st century problem. There's a couple of, of things that I think could be done that could help. You don't need Congress to do much first. You need enough political will to devote more resources to the asylum processing side of things for people who have a fear, a credible fear of returning to their home country, who are entitled to political asylum. Triple, quadruple, quintuple the number of resources and agents doing those processes. So at least those cases we can address quickly and fairly. On the other side, people who are quote unquote economic immigrants. The, the US-Mexico border is the largest land border in the world between a developed country and a developing country. So you will always have, as long as you have the labor demand, the demand for cheap labor on the American side and the oversupply of laborers on the Mexican side, people will find a way. Those forces is not, are not something that can be stopped no matter how tall you build a border wall. They will continue to be there. So unless we find ways to address that, um, th that is going to continue. And sadly, it's only going to get worse with climate change. We have started to see the first waves of, of uh, climate refugees, people who are displaced by climate change, and find their ways to, to developed countries like the United States, and not only other parts of the world, and, and Europe in particular. So that it will only get worse. And our even our immigration laws, our asylum laws, are not modern enough to address that phenomenon that is coming. It's going to be our lifetime in the next 10, 20 years. So if we don't do something about it, we're going to be in this situation for a long time. Mm -hmm. And um, I suppose you probably don't have a whole lot of hope that any of that would happen soon with uh, the Congress that we have currently, or do you? In the next two years, I don't have much hope that anything good or constructive is going to come from Congress. I think there are some things that the administration could do on its own, although, as I mentioned earlier, every time they have tried, they have been faced with litigation and that has complicated things. I, I try to take, I mean, I do believe that things will get better. Uh, it's eventually, it's why I do this work. I do believe in building a society that is fair and, and welcoming and places a lot less significance on person's place of birth, for example. If, if you truly believe in human rights, somebody's place of birth should not be that determinative of their, of their fate. But it's going to take a lot of us, a lot of people power to, you know, not only vote when the time comes, but that is incredibly important, but show support and, and show this vision of the United States becoming what we've purported to be for many decades, you know, a, a place of, of hope and protection, a beacon of hope for the people who need it across the world. And a country of immigrants, right? <laughs> uh, which, you know, let me let me go there for a moment, though I really want to talk also about how this affects the border communities and about the CPB, the Border Patrol. But I see in, in your background, you have your book and you have also the 1619. And um, there is a reason, right? I mean, um, this family separation didn't start now. They were part and parcel of slavery. In 2018, and, and this is something, again, I talk about in the book, we, it was very common to hear, this is not who we are as a country. Yeah. This is not the true America. This is not who we are. And in writing the book, I was like, let me, let me look into that. Let me see, like, ha how have immigrant families been treated in the past? And you're absolutely right. In, during slavery, it was, it was common for, for slave owners to sell the children of slaves and family relationships were basically thrown out the window. There's a, a memoir by Harriet Jackson of the 1860s who talks, shares about her experience being separated from her parents and uh, as a result of slavery. There are stories of uh, freed slaves who, quote, voluntarily re-enslave themselves to be together with their children. Mm. So th th the horrors of slavery are the true origin of, of this family separation policy. 
but it's not only that then in in during you know in the 1880s with the chinese exclusion act the to this day the only law that has excluded a specific ethnicity and nationality in its title that resulted in family separation in the early 20th century with the arrival of, of Jewish and Italian and Irish refugees, the images from the 1900s at Ellis Island in New York or Angel Island in San Francisco, children in hurricane fence cages, just like we saw in 2018. It's not that different. And during World War II, you had Japanese Americans and Japanese immigrants being sent to internment camps without any regard for family relationships and family re separations also resulted from that. So throughout our history, we have seen examples of immigrants who are not deemed to be white being separated and being treated miserably. And I say not deemed to be white because what's, what constitutes white has changed over the years over time. It's a social construct that Irish and Italian uh, immigrants who arrived in the early 20th century were not considered white. And nowadays, people are considered to be white. So it, it changes. It's a, very much a social construct that has legal consequences. And again, I don't share this to chastise our history or the United States, but I think it's also important not to romanticize it or not to sanitize it. Sanitize it. It's important to know what has happened, to know the facts, so that we can then confront our reality. And when we hear the same arguments today that were being made in 1882 in support of the Chinese Exclusion Act, they bring disease, they bring, they bring crime to our communities, they're gonna take our jobs, is the exact same arguments. They have been cleaned up a little bit, uh, although during the Trump years, they, they weren't shy about sharing their, their true racist motivations, but that it's the same arguments over and over and over again. Yeah. Okay, so we have about six minutes left. Um, this whole situation is affecting also border communities. Um, in fact, I read uh, that just uh, recently on, on December 4th, a young man named Mar Mark Limon uh, was murdered by uh, a border patrol officer. He lives in the United States. He's a United States citizen. He was uh, driving a car full of his friends who are also American, but um, as you might understand from his last name, he is, or he was, um, a Latino, and the the officer just decided that he was uh, a coyote bringing uh, migrants in and killed him. Um, so this is just one example of how things are affecting American citizens. Can you tell us a little more about that? The level of militarization of our borderlands is something that if people truly understood would would be shocking to, to most Americans. Um, under the current law, anywhere with, within 10 miles of the border, DHS officers, broadly defined, and are free to enter Homeland land. Security. Yeah, Department of Homeland Security. So that includes ICE, Border Patrol, etc are free, can enter lands, private lands, not homes, but your backyard without a warrant and without probable cause for purposes of patrolling the, to preventing the entry of, of people into the country. Imagine if that were the case in, I don't know, uh, St. Louis, Missouri, or uh, Houston, Texas, right? That Madison, Wisconsin. A, Madison, Wisconsin, right? If you had a law enforcement officer just walks into your, your backyard without a warrant or probable cause. And what has happened, what that said led to is an increase, as I was saying, militarization, and now the surveillance, right? Because the border wall didn't get built, certainly the, not the way former, the pro, former president promised, but some of it is still being built by, by this administration. But now it's what they call the smart wall, right? A surveillance, you have blimps all over the border, you have when you cross the border and where you're nearby face recognition software cameras everywhere it's something that is not okay and it's not something that people who profess to defend freedom would be would be in favor of um the other thing i wanted to flag about kind of what's happening currently uh when it when it comes to the busing and the flights of migrants that we saw in, in recent months um 
and I, I imagine people have heard this in the news or have seen it, but you know, in, in the last few months in the fall of last year, the Texas government was sending migrants by bus to other parts of the country. And then most notably, perhaps the government of Florida sent a flight of, of mostly Venezuelan migrants to Martha's Vineyard. But what we have not seen, I have not seen, and I don't think anyone has seen, are buses or flights of Ukrainian asylum seekers. Mm -hmm. Instead, what we managed to do was find the resources and the staff and the will to process thousands of Ukrainian asylum seekers. And I'm glad we did that because they need it. They're fleeing something horrible. But so are Haitians and Venezuelans, right? So when, when I talk about this racial disparity on how we treat immigrants at the border, it's not something of the 1880s only or of World War II. It's something very much of the present that is happening right now, that our laws are applied differently depending on folks' skin color. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and um, our engineer Summer uh, also mentioned that we had some ice activity here in 2018 and 2019 after the uh, murder of George Floyd, and that um, started actually in Portland, Oregon. But they are all over the place, aren't they? Um, they come um, and they, they are not always uniformed and they do damage all over the country. Two people minutes forget or so. that people forget that the agents who were taking children from their parents in 2018 are still the same agents at Border Patrol and in ICE. We have a different precedent, but the line agents are the same. And that's part of the reason why changing these policies and these laws has been difficult, because the people responsible for implementing them are the same ones that were, frankly, let loose during the Trump administration. They, they were able to show their true beliefs and they're still employed and being paid by our tax dollars. Yeah, yeah. I give you about 40 seconds uh, for your uh, final words to our listeners, friend. Well, I would encourage people when, when facing any issue relating to immigration law, immigration policy, to dig a little deeper than the headlines. It's always uh, oversimplified. And just ask yourself, right? Most of us, unless you're Native American, indigenous from the U.S., someone in our ancestry came to this land from somewhere else, under different laws, perhaps. Just think of that when you're seeing the people arriving today. They're motivated by the same reasons that most of us have come to the U.S., safety yeah. or protection. And it's the same reason that people move across the earth, looking for safety uh, or opportunity. Those are the two reasons why humans have moved and will continue to move. Uh, as long as we're on this planet. So we need to, you know, modernize our laws to face the reality of a 21st century problem that, that is the, the migration phenomenon. And, and a way of thinking um, for a lot of Americans. A friend, C. Olivares, my boy will die of sorrow, a memoir of immigration from the front lines and still involved in that work. Thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. I enjoyed our conversation. Thank you. Thanks. Bye-bye. And thanks to Jade and to Samer, who's back with us. I'm STD Noor. We'll be talking again next week. Bye-bye. Dark vision fly by helicopters in the night. Attempt triangulation of our station in the fight.